When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you 2 The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymichaelidis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc, etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Right, intro done, on with the show. 
Just a couple of weeks ago, we had part one of the interview with the Cramps from the 80s, with Lux Interior, who sadly is no longer with us now, and Poison Ivy. And here we pick it up and Going back to the early days, I mean, two. all right, I mean, we're say talking, you're perfectly ordinary people, but when you release records like Graveyard Hits and you make videos in graveyards, there are going to be a certain section of, of people out there that will avoid you because you, they think you're obsessed with the occult or something. And like now with your new album, I mean, you've got to admit with songs like uh, Hot Pearl Snatch, What's Inside a Girl, Can You Pussy Do the Dog, things like this, there's going to be a section of, of media that, w that will again avoid you. We can't help it if they don't understand what we do. We're just being ourselves. Uh, for one thing, it was called Gravest Hits, not Graveyard Hits. And grave means heavyweight. You know, our grave is our most, you know, we're serious hits. Um, and that video wasn't a graveyard either. No, we have done a photo session one time in, in a graveyard, and those photos were printed. We've also done photos in wig shops. You know, people could say that we're all about wigs. We've done photos in front of movies. Well, people do, in fact, say that all we're about is movies. Um, it's very easy to pick up on one thing. You know, it's like the blind man and the elephant or something, you know. and it, Those are things that interest us. You know, I, I, I think those things are related to rock and roll, I think, you know. We've never had any interest in the occult. Um, I think rock and roll is the opposite of a cult. I think rock and roll is raw power, whereas a cult means being desperately trying to use some kind of magic when, when you should just use the natural power you have, and that's what we've always used. Yeah, you know what I think is really funny about this, all this, this talk about us being interested in the occult, we're, we couldn't be farther away from that because we're interested in, in, you know, like we're human beings, we're animals that came to Earth, and, and we have this understanding, which I think is unusual today in this world, that we're here to be animals, to, to, to dance in this garden of delights, which is the Earth, and that's the opposite of the, of the occult. People that are in the occult are into uh, disciplines, they're into... Uh, 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 removal of sensual that's what a cult means that that's what the, the the spiritual life is it's it's a removal of the senses we're into the the you know the dance of the senses it's the exact opposite like uh, uh you know like skeletons and stuff like that you know like uh, uh this kind of symbols of of uh, horror and stuff like that 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 doesn't mean that that uh, we've ever had anything to do with the occult so much it's it's more to do with with uh with the human body than with uh you know, any kind of deprivation, you know, we're interested in, uh, you know, we're, we're a cornucopia of uh, rock and roll tunes, you know, rather than uh, uh, in any kind of like uh, um, any kind of discipline or anything, you know. Uh, I think it's funny, all these bands that are talking about they're so into occult and they act like they're into occult and they see these occult symbols and everything like that. In in a way, it's such a square thing. You know, it has nothing to do with Marlon Brando or Elvis Presley or Ricky Nelson or anything else that we're into. It's it's a real square thing. It's like in the first place, I think ninety eight percent of the people that are into it are phonies and not really into it. And the other ones that are into it are like they're just divorced from the world. It's they're off on their own thing, and and that's great. But I can't see a young pop culture. You know, it's silly for them to to side with that kind of thing because it has nothing to do with youth or or you know mu even music you know it really doesn't i think been confused because we we do and have said that we believe in magic and magic and occult aren't the same thing either magic is something that happens 
either that's bigger than than the people around creating it, something that's even bigger than that, something that can't be predicted, or magic is also something just that you think is happening when it really isn't, you know, whichever, it doesn't matter, you know, has the same effect, and that has nothing to do with the cult either, you know, it's not like, you know, cult is using things, it's like cheating to me, you know, it's... Little Richard was magic, you know. Little Richard, that's now that's magic, you know. The the punk rock of the mid seventies, that was magic when that happened. And it wasn't just the sex pistols, it, it was a whole lot of people made that magic, you know. A few a few of the other things you've been interested, everyone knows the um the the track you wrote for the Return of the Living Dead. Did you did you did you see a sort of rough idea about the what the film was about before you actually wrote the song? Yeah, we saw a whole rough cut. It didn't have a soundtrack or any kind of scoring to it, but we saw it wasn't a final edit, but it was a complete movie, and, and we fell in love with the movie, and that's why it, what provoked us to get involved. And are you actually working on a film now yourselves? Uh, we will be as soon as we get back from this tour. We're going to be scoring uh, a movie called Blood Feast 2, um, which is a sequel to a movie that came out in the mid-60s, and we'll be scoring that and writing songs to it too, but we'll be doing the whole soundtrack for that. And we might make an appearance in it, we're not sure right now it might go into production while we're touring, um, but if it doesn't, we'll be doing probably a performance scene in it. Is, is the Cramps just a nucleus of three with, with additional members that you pick up for, for touring, etc.? It's No, it's not intended to be that at all. It, it's it's the way it's happened to be recently because of, you know, the, through the so-called nucleus of three all have strong feelings about the same thing of what this band should be. Um, what we're looking for in a fourth member is something very special i think it's so special that it's that's why we haven't acquired anybody we've tried working with a few people over these last two years and we're just trying to do i think where some bands wouldn't be as picky about who they picked up we're trying we're just trying to do something that's bigger than all of us bigger than the four of us put together um right now we're doing this tour with with a girl named fur who's doing who's playing bass with us. And Where did she come from? Well, she's from Los Angeles, and she's involved with some bands there. So at this point, she's just doing this tour with us. I think she's really great. It would be great for us if, you know, if it, if it worked out in the long long run. But that's what we like because, I mean, it's, it's harder for us to stop and start and get someone new. We would rather just kind of keep flowing with four members. But we'll do whatever we have to do, and, and, and that doesn't that doesn't mean accepting mediocre person doing the tour where I think some people would say, well, we're losing money by not touring or we've got to go on and they pick up someone mediocre. We won't do that. Uh, it's got to be a great show. We Mainly, we've got to have fun when we're doing it and not so much putting on a show for an audience, but putting on a show for ourselves. If the rest of us don't dig it, we just, we're, you know, we can't stomach it. It's not worth the money or anything to us. I've known a lot of a lot of people that have had bands and then the bands broke up or some of the people left, and they'll just get anybody they can find to that look good on stage to to go on with, and they end up I don't want to name names but that they hate their bands and they just keep doing it just to get a little money, and we just don't have the energy to be able to do that. We've it, it's got to be make sense all the way around, and so it's so it's hard, you know. I mean, they got it's we're looking for a real special people a person, you know, and. and We've been, you know, all of our energy has been devoted to that for a long time. And I think our fans expect that from us, you know. They would be disappointed if, if we got some, you know, some nerd, you know, that, you know, didn't even know what was going on to be in the cramps. You know, it's a special position to be filled. It's like president or something. 
That's why we've gone through so many members, too. I mean, it's just been like a cavalcade of wimps, basically, that didn't, you know, they didn't have what it takes. They didn't understand totally what we were doing, you know, that it was like being in the trenches together. And that, uh, With somebody like Kid Congo, I mean, I mean, would he try and get you into doing some things that weren't necessarily the cramps? No, he didn't try to get us to do anything. He was quite passive to a degree that he couldn't play well enough couldn't tune his guitar um and really we didn't we didn't feel like one strong thing we like feeling like an eight-legged monster and he's real nice we're still friends but he didn't have anything to offer us musically when it came time to do smell female yeah we had nothing in common he really doesn't like the same music we do do he didn't try influence what we do i mean he'd do what songs we were doing but he didn't play them with a passion we felt that they should be played with um we kind of have a philosophy in this band that it has to be everybody giving their all. All four people have to give their all. It's like north, south, east, and west. It can't. It can't be. You know, it's got to be that way. You know, it's uh, it, one one weak link and you're through. You know. What about <laughs> briefly? What about a guy like Brian Gregory? I mean, it sounds like Drug Train was perhaps dedicated to him. Weak link. He had a, he had a great face and a great look on stage at first but he even lost that somewhere along the line he he like uh, he, he just didn't believe in what we were doing he didn't understand it in any, any way i mean like uh, people constantly talk about what amazing guitar solos he played well only played solos on three songs but uh, uh we had to we had to pull that out of his uh his uh, back pocket uh, to, to get him to do that we, we really had we really had to to beg him to do that and it's funny to me now listening because people come up to us all the time saying oh but he was so amazing on guitar and stuff he thought he thought when i mean we begged him to do that we showed him what to do and then and then he would when he did it he'd say oh people make fun of me if i do this so i mean like he really didn't understand or really you know like people just saw his face and took that to be you know something that it wasn't and that's why it led to in the first, very first first year or something, he really did believe in it, and, and then, and but somehow it just never, you know, went farther than that. You know, it, it's really weird because a lot of people try get in our band. They try to get a foot in the door, and they will tell us anything they think we want to hear. You know, they'll tell us that they've, you know, have all our albums and know know how to play them backwards and whatever. That was the case with him, for instance. He found out later that he didn't like any of our records after Gravest Hits and this kind. Of, you know, I mean, it's just. I think these people do regret when they get involved that far, but, they, you know, I, th I think they, for a lot of people, since they think of, uh, of being in music as a career for them, they think of it just like lying on the application for an, a regular job. I mean, that's fine. That's something you might do for being a stock clerk or secretary. I think it's okay to lie on your application. And once you're in there, you figure you'll figure it out and, and you'll be able to keep the job. But this isn't the same kind of thing. This is more like a marriage. That's like lying. To, it's, you know, it's, it, and some people have, we've gotten involved with, we didn't see that, that they were coming from that direction. And, you know, it's sort of been deceived that way. We really look at this fourth person as, as being like, you spend all your time together. You're intensely confronted with bizarre experiences constantly. You know, we, we plan to spend all our time together. So it is like being married to someone and saying, well, you have, you have a hard time getting a fourth member and stuff. It's like saying, you know, well, it's been, two years and you still don't have you still don't have a wife you know what's the problem and stuff like that because that's because it really is you know when you know at least the way we look at it it is just like being married to somebody you know what what uh, what it is to be in this band you know and it isn't any less than that so it is it, you know 
is a special person. You know, we really know that. Your dissatisfaction with with the output of bootlegs, etc., from Cramps concerts, which are substandard recordings and people basically making money out of your careers, um, has this led you led you to to be want to be more prolific with your releases in the future? Maybe I, I hope to be more prolific. I mean, we'll, again, we'll do everything we can to be so. You know, we've had you know mainly the legal setbacks and, and probably the member. I mean, at this point, we're happy if we have to making we made this last album as a three piece. So now, we, now that we see that we can do that easily, you know, I feel like there's nothing holding us back at this point. And we would like to release a record, you know, say this this time next year, uh, you know, probably record something during the fall. Okay. We're not going to let anything slow us down anymore. For a long time, we thought, like, we just ha- would have to stop until we found this member, but we're not going to do that in- anymore. It's just, you know, it's, it's just not, uh, it doesn't make sense. You know, uh, we would love to find, you know, the person that's going to stay with us and everything like that. Hope it happens, but if it doesn't, we're going to continue making records and do what we do. And that concludes The Cramps on the way back then. Part one of that interview is available on a previous Moments That Rock podcast. It was with Lux Interior and Poison Ivy, and it was from 1986. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. There's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes and they have some great stories. Insider Insights takes you inside their world for their stories and their rock star moments. Today's Insider Insights is part two of a conversation I had with Mark Radcliffe not too long ago. Mark's an established BBC guy from some 40 years experience in the UK. Done a whole bunch of stuff that if you listened to last time or go back and listen to the previous interview, we'll find more about. But meanwhile, he is today's Insider Insight. I mean, I remember just, um, you know, just you told me a couple of stories about interviewing Kate Bush and George Harrison. Those are two things that I remember vividly. Do you want to just briefly just recite those memories? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Kate Bush. I wouldn't say she's the female Bowie. She might be the female Peter Gabriel, but I mean, she's not. She doesn't need to be the female anybody. She's Kate Bush. She's amazing. Her records seem to exist only in their own world. And she seems to have been one of those people who's managed to play the music business entirely by her own rules. She's made records when she's wanted to. She's disappeared for years at a time to bring up her son. And uh, I just think she's a one-off and a genius. And again, lovely. Um, And she had an album... Um, well, she um, never did any interviews at all. And so mm. I was doing a show on Radio 2, which is a national station in the UK. And um, I played a record one night and I said, uh, by Kate Bush. And I said, OK, you know, um, I don't know if you're listening, uh, but uh, give us a ring and let us know you're OK. Just sort of off the cuff. And so then every night she didn't ring me. I put a picture of Kate Bush on the wall of the studio with a picture of whoever been the guest on that night, and I called it the Bushometer. And I put all these pictures on the wall, and they went all around the studio and out the door and down the corridor in the end. Anyway, um, funnily enough, the head of EMI Records at that time was a guy called Tony Wadsworth, who uh, I was at school with in Bolton, in, uh, in, uh, from Manchester. And he phoned me up, and he says... Um, 
funnily enough, Kate Bush has got a new album and she's interested in doing a couple of things and she's heard about this. Um, and so uh, she's going to get, I've given her your number and she's going to give oh you my a ring. God. <laughs> Uh, because she likes to talk pe- to people to see if she thinks she can get along. So, of course, every time their cell phone rang, I was like, um, hi, trying to decide what voice to put on. And it was like, oh, bloody heck, mum, you know. Just and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, the obvious thing happened. When the message came through, I missed it, and it went to answer phone. I was like, oh, I've got a message. And it's like, hi, Mark, it's Kate Bush here. And you're like, and I was looking at my phone. It was like, that was just looking at the phone and going, Kate Bush is in there. You know, and, uh, and she said, well, you know, she said, I think we could do this and, you know, uh, have a listen to the record, see if you like it. No pressure. If you don't like it, we won't do it. Um, this was Ariel, the double album, which I absolutely adore, particularly the second album in it, The, um, the Sky of Honey, the one where it tracks the day through birdsong. And I, I loved that. And so I went and she said, well, come to the house, she said, but um, she said, I've been a bit busy. So um, I, you know, I won't have time to cook anything, but I've got <laughs> some cheese flans and things, you know. And she'd said, come around and drink battery acid. I would have gone. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I went and she was just lovely. She was just like Bowie, really. And I've met people like, Paul McCartney and that, and the biggest stars, when you, Robbie Williams and people, when you get to the, the biggest ones, they're always lovely because if they've decided to do something. I mean, they've nothing to prove, any of those people. They don't need, like you said about Bowie, they don't need to do any of it. So when they decide to do something, they decide because they sort of feel like they could get on with you, they could have a chat with you, and they want it to be fun. You know, they want to enjoy it. Um, and so when I went to Kate Bush's and she said, right, oh, I'll just move the washing off the, the chairs in the kitchen so you can sit down. I'll put these flans in the oven, you know. And she was just so sort of down to earth, but incredibly smiley, incredibly friendly, you know, quite like her persona. But she was lovely. And so I met her a few times and also... She phoned, she, when I was ill, I was ill um, a couple of years ago. I had cancer of the, uh, the, the mouth and throat, and I'm fine now. And she phoned me up. And she oh, said, oh, how are nice. you? you know, and, and, so it's like, you think it's Kate Bush, you know? But um, I, 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 why would we expect these people not to function as normal human beings? They're, they are sensitive um, artists who have made a life out of observing things and turning them into art. So why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't Larry from U2 send you a Christmas card? Why wouldn't Kate Bush, having met me and liked me, phone me up? But we don't, we don't expect them to. So it's really lovely when they it's, do. It's strange, though, just to, just to give my kind of observation from the other side, from the record industry side. You said about the, the biggest artists are the nicest and this. And that. I totally agree. But do you know what else? They're the easiest to work with. Because yeah, yeah. they're never late. It's not like you turn up and say, "Oh, sorry, Mark, he, he got wasted last night, and I couldn't get him out." No, and we cancel no. the interview. And that happens a lot. And they're the kind of pretenders who think they're rock stars, because the the real rock stars. I mean, you know, we include the Kate Bushes and that rock in a loose term. But the thing sure. is, they realise it's not all about them. It's about a team of people, and you know the the cliches of you meet the same people on the way up as you meet on the way down. You know, mm-hmm. um, and those are two perfect examples. Can I just ask you about your uh, experience of meeting George Harrison? Yeah, well, um, George Harris, I was doing a programme, I was making a programme on Rick and Backer guitars. I was a big fan of the Rick and Backer guitar, you know, ever since uh, 
I guess Roger McGuinn and the birds. I suppose I love that sound. 12 string make, Rickenbacker. Uh, yeah. yeah, great. And I wanted to make a program about Rickenbacker guitars. And so I uh, um, through the um, record company or the plugging company or whatever, I said, will George Harrison do it? And he said, no. I said, okay, fine. You didn't expect it. So I thought, you know what? I'll just try one more time. And I've got a number from for handmade films, you know, who made all the Monty Python films and things like that, which was one of uh, George Harrison. George Harrison was on the main partners and funders of all that. So I wrote to his secretary and he had an office at Handmade Films, so separate from all his music business interests. I said, listen, you know, I'm just making this programme. Would, would George have half an hour to talk about Rick and Bucky guitars? And... Um, um, she said, uh, I'll ask him anyway. So she asked him and having bypassed all the kind of bureaucracy of the music industry, just going to someone who worked with him directly in a little office on one of those leafy London squares. Uh, she said, um, yeah, he says he'll do it. Yeah, if you come down this day. And I said, fantastic, great. So I went and sat in this office and I, I waited to, it, like, it was like a very old sort of headmaster's office, you know, with a big oak desk and bookshelves and those those old desk lamps which had green glass on them. You know, it's very old-fashioned, musty old carpet. And um, uh, then suddenly the door opened and one of the Beatles walks in, you know, George Harrison. And my first reaction was, uh, you really are a very good-looking man, aren't you? <laughs> you know, like, you look amazing. And, uh, and he was carrying a, um, a brown paper bag. I thought, well, what does George Harrison carry in a brown paper bag? And uh, he said, oh, do you right, we'll get some tea and everything. And he got the brown paper bag and he said, oh, he said, um, these are some flapjacks my wife's made. Would you like one? I'm like, yeah, I'll, thanks, that'd be nice, yeah. I think, you know, John, one of the most famous four men in the world at one point is offering me a home-baked flapjack, you know. <laughs> and um, uh, again, one of those moments. And, and, and um, my... Um, feeling about George Harrison was that um, how could you have been through one of the most remarkable lives that was lived in the 20th century and apparently be this normal having come through that how does that how did that happen I mean George was the first one really to tire of all the adulation and the screaming and everything of the Beatles wasn't it? I mean he was the yeah. first one when they were in a van getting out of I don't know whether it was Shea Stadium or whatever it was, and they were in this van, it was being hammered on the back, and him saying to the others, I don't, I don't want to do this, really. You know, and I think he was the first one, really, and he did seem to be different from the others, didn't he? In, I can uh, see that as a musician, ways. because, like, you just... You, they couldn't hear themselves. There's this cacophony no. of just screaming, yeah. and every time you opened a door from a car or a hotel, yeah. just mobbed by people. So you've, you've, you've no kind of real life, because when you think of it, they didn't last that long. No, no. And he didn't seem like a person who would relish... Uh, the limelight, you know, in the way that McCartney or, you know, Lennon in his own belligerent way, or even Ringo, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of, they seem to have a sort of different, but George, you know, I mean, he was always known as the quiet one, but he did seem to be the quiet one. And he did seem to me to be a bloke who just wanted to get on with his life and eat a flapjack his wife. But I mean, I'm just judging it off mating him that once. And so who, what do I know? But I did think that, he seemed remarkably unscathed by everything he'd been through. You know, you think this is a sort of level-headed kind of guy. Mm. Do you have a, um, I suppose that Bowie's the answer to the question, but in a nutshell, do you have a favourite interview? I mean, quite recently, um, 
it was a shared enthusiasm of uh, yours and mine when we were together. I remember when I left uh, your house, I remember leaving you a white label of the river on the table and saying, thanks for everything. Right. Uh, but the, um, you know, and good to see Bruce Springsteen because I did an interview with him about that last album, Western Stars, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. You know, no, all brilliant. that with the orchestra on that sounds like, you know, the Glen Campbell, Jimmy Webb, which it's all Lion Man classic and, um, so, favourite interviews is very difficult. I mean, you know, uh, there are people who have uh, done Paul McCartney. I remember doing Paul McCartney at Abbey Road Studios when he was doing a thing about songwriting. It was only me and him in the room. The engineer was through the glass. And him saying, so when I wrote Blackbird, <laughs> I had Paul McCartney on an acoustic guitar playing Blackbird to me in Abbey Road. You know, it's like... <laughs> Insane. And the Bowie stuff and the Kate Bush stuff and uh, all those kinds of things. I'd still uh, like to interview. I'd still like to talk to Keith Richards and I'd still like to talk to Dylan. You know, Dylan's still fascinating, isn't he? I mean, he's been famous for like the whole of my life and yet still no one really knows who he is. I mean, it's extraordinary. Tom Waits as well, I'd like to meet. But Bruce Springsteen was someone whose records had always liked. You were always a big fan. We always had that shared enthusiasm for Bruce and I'd never interviewed him. And um, then I got the chance to interview him with his most recent album, um, which is Western Stars of that classic American pop sound with the orchestra and the baritone guitars, the Jimmy Webb style songwriting, absolutely brilliant album. And so I did go and see him and uh, talk to him recently in a hotel in London. And again, like we've been saying, um, he seemed just incredibly normal. You know, when he came in the hotel room and the, it was it was all very efficient. You, these things are always the same, these junkets. You go to a hotel, a hotel that's so posh, it doesn't even look like a hotel from the outside. It looks like a sort of grand mansion house or something. And you go up to the first, the, the, the floor, they'll always have taken a whole floor over and there'll be different PR people in different rooms and saying, oh yeah, he's running 10 minutes early, he's running 20 minutes late, um, sit down, have a coffee, whatever. And they said, oh, he's right. He'll be with you in 10 minutes. We've shown him to this room. And um, when he came in, he just came in. It was me and a sound recordist and uh, my producer. And he just came in with one person who then said, oh, this is where you are next. This is Mark. And then left him to it. And he was just on his own. And, you know, once again, he was just the most charming person. You know, it's like you got the impression you could ask him about anything. Uh, he was very attentive. He was very... Um, is very, you know, polite and engaged and engaging. And, uh, you know, it is, it is, you know, when people say you should never meet your heroes, but for me, that's not been, that's not been the case. I've never met any of them and been disappointed. In fact, just the opposite, like you, when I've met them, I've sort of been struck by how they are thoroughly decent people and not thinking they're doing you a favour by talking to you, you know. I always remember talking to Joe Strummer, I've never forgotten this, Joe Strummer of The Clash. Yeah. I was doing an interview with him, um, actually at the Cambridge Folk Festival, and it was on TV. And I always remember he came in, Joe Strummer, and he asked uh, everybody in turn in the room their name, down to people with clipboards or people running for coffee or people putting the wires out of the way. He said, I'm Joe, who are you? You know, and someone said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm Tommy, I'm moving the cables out of the way. He said, right, nice to see you, Tommy. And he shook hands with everyone in the room. And I thought, that's got to be the way to do this, hasn't it? That's got to be the way to do this, to acknowledge that everybody, like you said, there's a team in this. Everybody's doing something. And just because the bit that you're doing is taking you to superstardom doesn't make you a different, um, you know, a, a, a different being. 
to the guy who's moving the cables out the way or getting you um, a cup of coffee. The splendid Mr. Mark Radcliffe. Uh, just for your information, Mark Radcliffe um, is an old, old friend and um, very experienced and talented broadcaster at the BBC in England. I met Yup Mark when he just started at Piccadilly Radio in Manchester and... Uh, he was probably just turned 20 or something like that and started to work his way up to become a producer. Then ended up doing a late-night radio show called Cure for Insomnia. He lived with us for two years, so we became very close mates and we used to share record collections and stuff. I'd play him the stuff that I grew up on and he introduced me to some stuff that, um, you know, I went other artists I went to love. And... Um, yeah, it was interesting because when Mark got the job in London, I just went into Program Controller and uh, complained that uh, they'd just got rid of a great show. And what are you going to do? Stick another program on playing playlist stuff? I said, for God's sake, this is a seven day a week, 24 hour a day radio station. Why can't you find three hours a week to play decent music? So the guy said, why don't you do it? So I thought, well, sod it, that's it. I'd never done a mobile disco, a bar mitzvah or a wedding in my life. And I was broadcasting on the largest radio station outside of London. It lasted for nearly 14 years, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and got an enormous amount of records, so my record collection became very, very lush. Uh, Mark is still a good friend, and uh, it was great to pick up the phone and talk to him. Um, He had a cancer scare, but he's cured from all that now. Um, And it's great to hear his stories about the people he's interviewed, the people like George Harrison and Paul McCartney and Kate Bush and... David Bowie, of course, and to hear him talk about Springsteen there as well. Uh, the reason, he, you know, he's very humble and everything, but the reason kind of he gets on with artists is the fact that he's kind of normal with them. He doesn't treat them like superstars, and um, he gets them to say stuff that other people don't. Um, he's a fascinating subject. I'm really pleased to uh, to have had him on Moments That Rock. And I'll have him back, because if there's topics of interest that I think uh, he can comment on, I'll grab a Zoom call with him. But for now, that's it. Well, I lied. That's not quite it. When I heard him recite the Bruce Springsteen story, it just reminded me of my own experience with Springsteen. Um, The River Tour had just ended, and Bruce had sent the E Street Band back to the States and stayed behind to see you two, who were playing a gig called Hammersmith Palais, an established venue in London in the early 80s. And um, we got Bruce some tickets and backstage uh, some passes, which allowed him to get in for free. Not that he couldn't afford to play, of course. Um, But it was really good because he wasn't hassled at all at the gig. He kind of came in and he just stood there and watched the band. And at the end of the show, uh, we took him back to meet the band, who, of course, were enthralled to meet, you know, one of their heroes. And a very unassuming and fabulous guy that he was and everything. I remember leaving the show and um, going outside and he was just sat on his um, in in a truck there was just him and his roadie so I got his autograph I don't get many autographs and uh, got chatting to him a little bit really great unassuming guy I actually went to the show with a, a colleague a girl called Tash from A&M Records who I was working with at the time and um, it's so funny because we reconnected on Facebook and uh, she she reminded me, she said, do you remember when we went to see Bruce? I said, yeah. She said, do you remember afterwards you went and got his autograph? I said, yeah. She said, do you remember you didn't have a pen? I said, no. She said, no, don't you remember you didn't have a pen? I said, so what? I didn't have a pen. She said, do you remember who you got a pen from? I said, no. She said, Pete Townsend. And it's so funny, actually, because I... Um, <laughs> I remember I wrote something about the story on Facebook and a really legendary photographer, Adrian Boot, was at that show as well and he took photos and stuff. 
And um, I didn't realise at all, but there was a photograph of me and Springsteen backstage and he sent it to me and I stuck it at my Facebook page. So if you want to go and see it, go and check out my Facebook page and he's there. But uh, yeah, Springsteen's a really unassuming guy, um, real man of the people, um, does so much and is such a huge inspiration to so many. Long may he run. His last album, Letter to You, was absolutely brilliant. So there you have it, episode six already of Moments That Rock. Moments That Rock is a, a cornucopia of various bits of chat here and there. There's Way Back Then section, which you heard earlier. Next week's Way Back Then will feature part two of my interview with Joey and Dee Dee from the Ramones. There'll also be Peter Hook, formerly of New Order for several decades, and uh, Joy Division, of course, who's now got his own venture, and he's uh, an author with several books out. That's about it for us for this week. If you want to listen to all the previous stuff, then just go and check it out. And um, wherever you listen to your podcast, you'll hear all our previous ones. And keep listening, subscribe, and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.